Gather round cause we're here at Dreamland with none other than Cole Schaefer himself. We're talking about the stuff that stirs your soul and keeps you up late at night. At Dreamland, we sit down with Grammy-winning producers, James Beard award-winning chefs and New York Times best-selling authors as they divulge the processes they've used to turn their dreams into the kind of creative work that's shaping culture as we know it. Buckle up because this is no ordinary show. There will be fire, spilt milk, and more than a few surprises as we discover what it means to be creative at Dreamland. given many like keynote speeches not not a whole lot like I guess around like 2017 or 2018 I was like I'm going to get on stages and I'm going to speak a whole lot and I did it fairly like sporadically here and there I did it um 2019 was the year that I did the most and I did traffic and conversion okay in San Diego and um and I think it went, I mean, it was a packed house, like, yeah. like fire marshals keeping people out. Um, oh. I don't, some people said it was great. Uh, Todd Herman, I don't know if you know him. I've heard of him. He, um, he said to me the next day, so he, he said, so how do you think it went? He was there. I was like, that's not something that's not a to good ask sign. people. No. no. So I don't know how that one went. And what did you say to it? I said, um, I can't tell. I'm not sure it was my... Like it, I didn't necessarily feel like it was my audience. Like, yeah, I couldn't tell if they were getting my jokes. And he was like, "It's not about the audience." <laughs> and then, and then I spoke at um, at Copy Chief Live in 2019, that same year, and he was there speaking too. And he was like, he said, "So improved." Oh my <laughs> god. That is not. No. So it didn't really instill confidence. It was like, yeah. Well, was I? Terrible? I don't know. Um, so or was it a different is not yes. what you want to hear. <laughs> Never. It's like when uh, like people have told me before, like, oh, it looks like you've like you have you lost weight or you've lost. And I never really love hearing that. Oh I'm just no, like, no. Like, did I need to? Yeah, just say oh, I, you look. You look great. Right. Yeah. You look great. You look so much thinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. No to that. Um, all right, let's, let's, we've kind of already started, but I wanted you to tell me about uh, Miss Fishbone. Ugh. That, are we swearing on your podcast? You can, you can say any, anything I can, you want. I can say that cunt. Yes, yeah. yes, you can. Everyone wants to know about her. Well, what do you want to know about her? Do you have a specific question? Should okay. I just tell them so who we are? One, I, I absolutely loved your book. Thank you. I will admit, I will admit reading it, it was, you were, you were kind of like my writing idol and you've lived up to it. But reading it at times, I was like, cause there's some graphic aspects of it. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know. It was like, it, it was, it was, it made me blush at times, like in a really good way. <laughs> yeah. um, but we'll get to that, all, all that in a bit, mm -hmm. but fishbone. So like when I was in, I want to say middle school, I was dating a girl. I made her a bracelet out of starburst wrappers. We broke up, okay, and she was on the cheerleading team. And later on, like like a couple weeks later, someone made a joke about it, about the Starburst bracelet. 
And I literally just like crawled inside of myself and died. I mean, I mm-hmm. still to this day, like I don't really touch Starburst, right? <laughs> it's ruined Starburst for me. And then you tell me, uh, or I read your book about Miss Fishbone and I was like, Laura gets it. So just run us through. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the chapter you're talking about yeah. is called Deb Fishbone Likes This. Mm-hmm. And the premise of it is um, me hate following, hate friending my middle school bully decades later on social media, mostly on Facebook, and um, finding her to be spectacularly unremarkable and basic. Mm -hmm. Just She's a basic bitch, which is really gratifying. And I don't (laughs) see that much of her in my feed. Um, She only, you know, occasionally posts... Uh, something of her daughter being athletic. Yeah. Like um, how basic are we, are we saying like the live, laugh, love, live, laugh, like restoration love. Well, sign? Th- I like to imagine that okay. there is no real hard evidence, but mostly what I would see of her in my feed um, would be her name atop every major retail ad. So uh, it would say like Bloomingdale's, Deb Fishbone likes this. ASOS, <laughs> Deb Fishbone likes this. Revolve, Shop Bop, Nordstrom's, every, and you name it, Deb Fishbone likes this. Starbucks, <laughs> Deb Fishbone likes this. And um, that was very gratifying for me because I needed to know that she turned out to be totally unremarkable because what she did to me in sixth grade, which was in a nutshell, steal my best friend and um, take over my friend group and get me kicked out of it. And so I was, you know, stole my best friend in like a, in a second when we got back from camp first day of sixth grade. And then all of a sudden I wasn't invited to, uh, to pizza Wednesdays, wasn't invited to play Pac-Man at Baronet's um, car shop. That was where we went to play video games, wasn't invited to go uh, get leg warmers, any of it. And she made my life a living hell and turned everybody in school against me. Um, and the worst thing that she did to me, I think, or at least the one that had the most impact on my psyche uh, was that when I, we had a creative writing assignment for English class and I was very proud of my work. I, I poured myself into it, you know, to, um, you know, the time of grief. I was like, I'm going to pour myself into my creative Mm -hmm. work. So I wrote a short story, uh, fiction called Liddy and me. And it was about a girl named Liddy, not Laura. It was clearly not autobiographical who went to a totally different private school in New York city. And, um, so I was holding the, I'm sure I got an A on it and I was holding it and I had those like nice rings as in, in through the three holes and, um, the laminated cover and, I was holding it in the lunchroom and Deb Fishbone grabbed it out of my hands, said, what's this? And I was like, hey, give that back. And she was like, oh, hmm, Liddy and Me by Laura Belgrade. And she started flipping through oh. it and she just had this knack for going right to the most vulnerable part and um, opened it up and started reading aloud. And it said, I have good friends, but I feel like I'm losing them slowly. And then she turns to mm. me and she goes, this is you. And I was like, oh, what? It's so not me. It's fiction. I'm getting like chills. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, it's fiction, duh. Um, But I was just (laughs) like, never felt quite so exposed 
in my life and vulnerable. And, you know, it's like when someone walks in on you in the bathroom, when you've got, you wouldn't know this, but like, you've got an entire jumpsuit down around your ankles. It's just, <laughs> naked so on the toilet. vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but what's, what's interesting is like now from a writing standpoint, I would say you're the most vulnerable writer I read on a regular basis. So it clearly didn't have like any lasting effects or at least lasting effects in terms of not being able to be vulnerable, like from a creative standpoint. Yeah. I I think it might be like revenge vulnerability. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Like screw you, Deb Fishbone. I'm going to take what, you know, what you did to me did not last. Um, doesn't hurt. Didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. It hurt incredibly, but, um, and I, I think that whole year turned me into a self-conscious person. Yeah. And that's a that's a time of life that does turn us into self-conscious mm-hmm. people. And we no longer have the freedom, that creative freedom of thinking we're awesome. Right. And everything we do is awesome. And then we start to criticize ourselves, et cetera. But um, now I really do, I've had to remind myself on a regular basis, like when I feel like someone's not going to like this, or which means someone's not going to like me. I have to remind myself that life is not sixth grade, that one person disliking you can't ruin your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which is absolutely in sixth grade, they can. Yeah. One person disliking you is so dangerous. And um, so as we get older and in adulthood, um, and especially in business, it's like kind of the opposite of sixth grade in that, it's the it's the weirdos who make it. The weirdos, the people who stand out. That is the key to creativity, to business, to life, um, to to maybe being popular, right. and um, and being same is the kiss of death. And so it's a nice turn of the tables, and I like to ride it. Yeah. At the end of that chapter, you said something along the lines of like the key to success in business, creativity, expression, and. I think writing or creativity is reminding yourself you're not in sixth grade anymore. Yeah. And I think that's wild. I love that line. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's okay to be disliked. It still stings. I don't like it. I don't like being disagreed with. I don't like it when somebody writes back and corrects something, I, like even a typo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, it's not like I developed a really thick skin. Right. I just know, I just Do any writers myself. have that though? Like if, do any writers just, you know, smile and grin when someone corrects them on a typo? I mean, I guess some yeah. are, have thicker skin than, than others. I think so. I think there are some people who have a thick skin and are yeah. able to say like, oh, I don't care if you like it. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. you're, but you're still not I, one of those I'm people. I'm not one of those people at all. In fact, I like sometimes my emails, like if I, if I get a nasty reply from someone, which I do on occasion, like sometimes they are vitriolic and yeah. I have to really, I have to breathe through it. I have to, sometimes I'll delete it right away mm-hmm. and then I'll undelete it and like forward it to my manager so that we have a record of it. I'm like, I might want to revisit it. I might want to pick at this scab mm-hmm. um, later. Yeah. And that <laughs> doesn't, I mean, I, I, when I was 23, 24, getting into writing and maybe I would get those responses. I, I went like, I had a really bad habit of <laughs> literally responding to those emails and telling people to go fuck themselves. Uh And I read back through them after a while. And I was like, you know, that's, I feel like this is going to catch up to me. I probably shouldn't have this response, but it's, that's your immediate response. Right. 
Yeah. Um, somebody, somebody wrote back to me once before I developed a, you know, a practice of not responding right away, sometimes not responding at all, trying not to. And someone wrote to me like they hated the email and I can't remember what I said that offended them, but they said, talk about lame. And I think I wrote (laughs) back, you're the lame one, asshole, (laughs) which is not, not much of a Clever burn. And it, but it's not clever. I, I would think you could come up with something a little clever, cleverer than that. I think I probably did as yeah. well. It wasn't. Yeah. I don't think that was the entirety of it. But uh-huh. um, and then I was really ashamed. I'm like, and now they have a record of me being a total reactive dick. You know what? You know what? Um, like when someone says like you're lame, it's almost the, the same as when you were when I was in middle school kids would say, like, if you said something that was out of the blue or original or creative, it was, that was random. You know, you're so random. You're so random. And it was heartbreaking. (laughs) So if someone told me that today, I would probably, I'd probably call him an asshole too. Yeah. Well, now you you can at least still say random. Yeah. And be like, lame is off the table, by the way. Yeah. You you can't can't say say lame lame. anymore. Oh, oh shit. I didn't know. No, it's ableist. No kidding. Yeah. So... If I were to get that today, I would say ableist much, asshole. There you go. <laughs> um, your your dad was an industrial engineer at Eastern Airlines. Yeah. And then decided randomly to become a, a psychologist. So random. Very random. <laughs> what were the advantages and disadvantages of being raised by a, a therapist? <laughs> It's hard to come up with a lot of advantages to it Um, because he he, like as a a person in the travel industry, he got like he got perks like free, you know, free flights, sometimes upgrades to first class, et cetera. I missed out on pretty much all of that um, because I was around four when he started to transition Mm -hmm. to being a, a shrink. And so I grew up with someone who probed me endlessly, like was all the way up my asshole. Um, using that word a lot today, <laughs> like trying to get my feelings out of me. He was obsessed with feelings. So um, I guess one of the one of the pros on the pro side, he was very, um, and this is also his personality, easily expressed love. And Aww. I never had to be one of those um, women who grew up chasing like daddy's approval. Yeah. I, I got too much of it. Like right. he approved of everything. <laughs> and, but always, except for the way I expressed my feelings, because I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I just kept them in a locked box. Like we would come out of a movie and he would say, How did you like the movie? And I'd say, It was, it was good. And say, It was good, isn't a feeling. How did it make you feel? And it's just like, Dad, get off my butt. Um, Stop smothering me. Then he'd say, hold on. The word smother contains the word mother. So let's discuss that. (laughs) No, let's not. That's what's, what's interesting now. I feel like feelings, uh, like my psych, my therapist will tell me he will write it on the board all the time. Like feelings are not facts. So he doesn't want me to put too much weight into my feelings. It's just interesting how kind of thoughts change around that type of stuff or yeah. practices. Yeah. Yes. Um, because yeah, I think to my dad, they were facts. Yeah. They were yeah. treated as like gospel. Like we're, if you feel that way, then it's true. Um, it and he true. would always hold that, you know, he, that he would, he would say like, Oh, I feel this way. Like I feel it's really important that you come to this 
um, you know, you come to this funeral with me of the, of some, somebody you don't know. And I said, well, that's a feeling. I don't, <laughs> okay, good for you. Yeah. You should have uh, said so, feelings aren't facts. Yeah. Feelings aren't facts, dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, the white house ever write him back? <laughs> yeah, he did. He, no, they did not. He lobbied the white house. He lobbied everyone, but he really felt, um, in actually, maybe multiple administrations that he could help the country by giving therapy to the president, but especially during Trump's term, um, he was every day, he was like, Trump needs therapy. Then he would say, well, he's probably beyond therapy, but I can help. And he wrote to the head of the police union. He wanted to give the police union therapy. um, And, you know, oh, he had a whole, like a whole, kind of class, a workshop that he was going to take them through, that he yeah. would demonstrate. Which, in fairness to him, I do think Trump would have been better off having him as a therapist. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I wonder. I actually wonder, like, who is the president's therapist? Yeah, well, you know Trump did not have a... Yeah. Trump does not believe in therapy. No, no. And that's but, exactly how he would say it. Trump doesn't believe in therapy. But it'd be kind of cool to be, like... Obama's therapist. Yes. I bet that was a rad job. Yeah. Yeah. I would bet that he had a therapist. Yeah. You would have to. You would think. You would think. Yes. Unless you were already crazy. Yeah. And and then your um your dad was like a hell of a marketer though too, right? He had he had ads all over the place. Yes. Yes. So this was actually a a sort of side perk of him um going into that industry and becoming his and um yeah like starting his own business Mm -hmm. as a therapist his own practice he was really into marketing himself and promoted himself relentlessly we had a joke um because he he had this racket um that uh, some people tried to copy from him but he was really inventive when it came to the yellow pages he advertised in the yellow pages under so many different listings for types of therapy. So it'd be like, you know, therapy for the aged, Jewish Therapists Association, Anger Management Society, like every type of therapy, he would create a different business listing for. So you could find him under just about any kind of help that you needed in mm-hmm. the yellow pages. And um, we realized our, our joke was that he was, so to give you background, there was a um, a, a dermatologist who famously advertised in the New York City subways for years and years and years, like up until recently when he retired. His name was Dr. Zismore. And his um, he would have these posters in the subway that named every single skin condition you could possibly imagine or or that you'd never heard of. And so it would be like, you know, Acne, psoriasis, um, der- like mm. dermatitis, everything was just a word cloud of skin problems. And, you know, with his smiling face in the middle, his smooth, unlined, um, probably injected face. And so that's Dr. Zismore. So we would joke that my dad was the Dr. Zismore of therapists. I, I kind of love the people who go all in on marketing. We have, we have someone here not in town. I actually don't know where he's at, but he's an attorney and he calls himself, calls himself the hammer. (laughs) (laughs) And in in Tennessee, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, you cannot drive on the highway and not see 
like his smiling face and like an actual hammer. And he just calls like, if you, if you're in an accident, call 1-800, the hammer. The hammer. Yeah. And I bet he gets a lot of business, but it sucks. Like it literally sucks seeing that everywhere. I don't know a lot of lyrics to songs. I'm just mm-hmm. terrible with lyrics. I can't, I'm, I'm you too? awful. I, I never, yeah. like, I don't know any songs by heart except maybe happy birthday. Mm-hmm. And, um, the jingle for Salino and Barnes. Really? Salino and Barnes, injury attorneys, 800-888-8888. Don't wait, call eight. Okay, see. <laughs> it's just relentless. I can have like my favorite song. I mean, if I don't know, like everyone has like their favorite songs. I can't, I can't remember the lyrics to it. Like I, yeah. and to the point where I sometimes won't really like sing along to it. Cause I'll have that, that awkward moment where you're, you forget the lyrics and yeah. Jeremy is the greatest of all time, like as far as like people I know who can remember lyrics, oh, like just amazing. off the dome, like he can remember a whole rap song from start to finish, every single word in it. The only one I can do is the Humpty Dance. That's it. Okay. That's my karaoke go-to. And I, I've already forgotten it, but I, I was yeah. for a while. Like I really made a point of memorizing it so that I could do but something. Don't karaoke. Karaoke. Doesn't karaoke have the words on the screen? Yes, oh, but bad. even then, I can't. I yeah. I can't keep up with them unless I know it by yeah. heart. Well, yeah. it's a good thing we're, <laughs> we're writers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. but that like just to to go back to my dad, you um, and that being a perk, like that he marketed himself mm-hmm. so hard, it was a little embarrassing. But it really taught me to promote myself shamelessly. That there was no shame. I don't even like the term shameless mm-hmm. for like shameless self-promotion because that implies that there should be shame. Yeah. And yeah, he just showed me that there was no shame in promoting yourself. And he did really well and did better than most people, most therapists who had their yeah. own practice. You're um have you ever heard of the like the idea of the triple A locksmith? Yes. 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 To yeah. get first the yeah, primacy yeah, there was in first the, like Allen's locksmith right. and then someone got smart and was like you know what we're just gonna call her say call ourselves a locksmith and then someone else was like nope we're gonna be double a locksmith <laughs> and then someone was like okay no triple a locksmith i used to see that and be fascinated i, I didn't realize that was the evolution of it but that yeah. makes perfect sense yeah so like you're yeah. like a triple a marketer i think it's like a really savvy way to be you know it is yeah can't can't do it anymore no, but. no. Um, after uh, after college, you worked a bunch of odd jobs. You were a bartender, mm-hmm. a temp, mm-hmm. a secretary, and then you got a call that kind of changed the trajectory of your life forever. So I was wanting you to tell me about uh, Lisa Bernbach. We interrupt this broadcast to bring to you a message from one of our lovely patrons here at Greenland. One of my favorite writers of all time is Hunter S. Thompson. He was played by Johnny Depp in the book-turned-film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, The film got a lot of people interested in psychedelics. It also freaked a lot of people out, too. Take the opening line. Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats. Psychedelics, when abused, can be this. A scary trip, they can be a sky full of bats. But when taken in sub-hallucinogenic doses, they can enhance your creativity. Schedule 35 is one of the most trusted psilocybin brands among creatives in North America. Now they got micro doses, which is what I like to take when I'm feeling like I'm in a creative rut. If you're into seeing bats, you can use a super dose. 
Also have the lover's dose if you're feeling frisky. If you say fuck the doses and you just want chocolate, they also got psilocybin chocolate. Today, Schedule 35 is offering Dreamland listeners, that's you, 15% off your first order with discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. If you want to claim that, just head over to schedule35.co and use discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. Let's get back to the show. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I had I had a series of odd jobs. I bartended terribly and got fired from both bartending jobs mm-hmm. that I managed to get and tried temping. I didn't like anything that I did temping. And I was deathly afraid of any job where you had to wear pantyhose. Yeah. And get on the subway and have that. What was your punchline? I don't cover up these legs or something. (laughs) I'm not putting pantyhose on these legs. (laughs) (laughs) I just like to bait people with that. So they'd say they're nice legs and they weren't even, you know, they weren't, I've never been my greatest feature, but um, yeah. So I like there was, I was living at home with my parents and there was some pressure on me to, I mean, they're very lenient and tolerant, um, but would ask pretty regularly, how's the job hunt going? And, you know, it's like lay off. I'm networking, which meant going out till 4 a.m. and, you know, doing, doing what one does yeah. at 4 a.m. Um, and then I was back in my, like having been fired from various things, I was back in my regular groove of sleeping till noon, going out till four, sleeping till noon. And uh, I got a call one morning around 11 a.m. And it was from a high school friend. And she was like, sorry to wake you. I was like, I'm uh, I'm awake. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sleeping. It's so late. And she was like, okay. Um, we, I, I'm working for this writer, Lisa Birnbach. And I knew who Lisa Birnbach was. She wrote the Preppy Handbook. And um, she said, and we're working on her, her college book right now. And we're doing fact checking and we need more, like I'm fact checking and we need more fact checkers. Mm -hmm. We need more people to come in. Can you come in? I was like, today? She's like, yeah. I was like, oh crap, there goes my plan to go to, you know, step class and go buy crop tops and Mm -hmm. for, you know, do my usual things. Um, But you were into it. You were like, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. I was like, you know what? Maybe like, it sounds kind of cool. This woman's a famous writer uh, and this is my chance to go do something creative <laughs> and who knows. So I just said, yes, yeah, sure. Um, give me the address. And I got dressed and went in and started doing this fact checking for her. And it was in, she was, ta- she had taken over a room in her husband's offices. So he worked in television and mm-hmm. film and had a partner who had created the show Kate and Allie. It was like a very entertainment kind of environment and um and the job that we were doing fact checking like it involved calling these colleges and verifying like would you say that your school is a party school um (laughs) and and then writing little blurbs with little facts uh or correcting the ones that she had but i got to write a few little things like little short things and Lisa liked me. She liked what I wrote. She liked me. She thought I was funny. And I remember my dad coming in um, for to meet me for lunch one day. And she and I introduced them. And Lisa said to him, um, "Yeah, we love Laura here. We've got to find a way to tap that talent." And I was like, oh, 
that's exactly what I want. That's what, that's, that's the phrase. That's what I'm looking for. I was just looking for somebody to spot my talent and tell me what to do with it Mm -hmm. and find some sort of creative outlet that would pay money that would just set my talent free, like let it gush forth. Uh, you know, I would just think of like a maple syrup tap (laughs) in a tree. And I think of those, those maple syrup commercials where it just comes pouring out of the tree. And it's like, that's me. I am waiting for my, like something, the world is waiting for my talent to pour out of me. Just tap it. Someone tap it. And, um, she didn't like, after we wrapped up the book, uh, she didn't really have a job for me and she had me be an assistant for a little bit, which is not my fort. I helped her organize her clutter, which was hilarious um, because I I am clutter. But (laughs) after that, she got a job at Spy Magazine. They hired her as a deputy editor. And Spy was this downtown, like the hot downtown satirical publication in New York. And I didn't really read it. It was fairly political and Maybe a little too smart for me, um, but I knew of it mm-hmm. and I loved magazines and had always kind of wanted to work in magazines, but I didn't know in what capacity. And Lisa said, let's see if we can get you an internship. And she did. Damn. She hooked me up with an internship at Spy, and which, um, you know, those tend to go to like Harvard guys yeah. did at the time. Yeah. And she got me one. And uh, Spy, I mean, at the time was kind of... Same caliber as Esquire. and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it was up there. Very, very sharp, um, witty writing. And the the editor-in-chief was Graydon Carter before I got there, who's now, you know, went on to Vanity Fair and now has this newsletter, Vanities, and, um, and then Kurt Anderson, who was there when I started. And it was just a smart crew. Yeah. And uh, so I, I got this internship, and I was probably the world's worst intern. Um, I like my, one of my jobs was to Xerox what they called the gossip pack. Mm-hmm. So I would go through, like go buy all the daily papers and um, pull out the gossip sections and Xerox them and collate them, staple them and then put them on editor's desks. So they would have some fodder mm-hmm. for the day. And I was fine at that. I could Xerox. Um, I was by no means like, buttoned up and always on time. And I didn't get there early and put them on their desk early. That would have been great. But our other role, like they really wanted us to become uh, editors there. They wanted us to show our talent and write stories and pitch stories and become associate junior editors. And um, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. Like I will come up with some good stories. Um, Just give me time. And like week by week, I would be like, well, no ideas this week for any stories, but here's your gossip pack. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and the editor, the managing editor took me to lunch and told me, you know, um, you are invited to take initiative here. And I was like, oh no, yeah. initiative. I was like, when someone tells you to take initiative, that pretty much shows that's solid proof that you don't have any. Yeah, 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 <laughs> that you have not been taking it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I ran out the clock on those, on my six months there, like trying to come up with some stories, but I just, nothing really um, flew. And uh, 
at the end of my internship, I mean, I, I went on, like I went on interviews for other jobs, hoping the right thing would come along. Right. And I had a couple of, you know, a couple of things that I thought this is it. And then I didn't get it. Or it was a ter- ridiculous idea, like being Julia Roberts assistant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was always, I was curious too, like what your, what would your life look like if you actually ended up getting that job <laughs> with Julia Roberts? I mean, there's what would my life look like if I got the job and what would my life look like if I had been qualified for the job yeah. and been, because I think, you know, we tend to um, get mired in like, you know, kind of walk a groove in jobs that, um, yeah, we wear a groove into jobs that we're good at mm-hmm. and it's easy to get complacent and stuck in something that you're not necessarily happy with. So if I'd been good at it, I might've ended up in some Hollywood job that I didn't like very much. Um, but I was lucky enough that the ad side took mercy on me when my internship was up and invited me to take a job there. Like they had a paying job for me and they gave me my first, I didn't even know it was copywriting, but they gave me my first copywriting assignment, which was to write an advertorial and, you know, advertorials are those pages in the magazine that look like they're part of the magazine, but aren't really. They just say like promotion in tiny letters at the right. top. Right. Yeah. And it looks like an actual story. Yes, or yeah. advertisement it looks like an actual story. And so this was a job that no one on the editorial side wanted. And so they gave it to me and it was a advertorial for doers scotch. And um, I had a whole page to write of like little things. Like there was a a drink recipe in the sidebar. Mm-hmm. And then there was a quiz that I came up with called, do you party like your uncle Marty? <laughs> and it was a quiz to determine whether you were like cool, hip and young or an old fart loser. Yeah. And if you were an old fart loser, the remedy would be to drink doers, um, <laughs> to make you young and hip. And then I, and then ironically, um, the bottom part of it was an essay, a short essay on adulthood. While I was still honestly like, I wish more parents. advertising was like that. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a, it'd be a lot more fun. Yeah, it was good. Like I was very proud to have a whole page in Spy. Yeah, that that is something to be proud of. Did you? I mean, did you ever think about working at an ad agency and, and doing that whole thing where you were moved up the ranks there? I did think about it, and then one, like first of all, I had seen ad agencies or just one of them in the movie, nothing in common with Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason and Tom Hanks works in an ad agency and um, they would like brainstorm and throw pencils at the ceiling. And I guess it was a popcorn steel ceiling and the pencils would stick. stick in. And um, that seemed so cool to me. It's like, yeah, I would love to work in advertising. And um, I didn't really know how to go about it. I heard you had to have a portfolio of mm. work. I was like, well, I don't have that. So um, I'm out. And then someone from Spy that I worked with went on when Spy closed. Um, he went, or before that even, he went on to an ad agency. He got hired by an, an ad agency um, to as a copywriter. And we would meet up for lunch and he would just complain about how awful it was and how some guy named Gary who had come up with um, the army slogan, be all that you can be mm-hmm. and was riding, like just resting on those laurels for the rest of his life. Um, Gary King his work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That he, you know, he ran everything that he would shoot down your ideas and um, talk too much. And I think there, 
they called it the Gary Chronicles. They're like, oh, another Gary story today. And yeah. so I was able to cross that off. I liked reasons to cross something off. Mm-hmm. That sounded hard. Yeah. Like, well, I don't have a portfolio and it sounds terrible. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it li- at least limits like your decisions a little bit, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like everyone who, any, any copywriter, and honestly, I feel like most people probably romanticize what life would be like at an ad agency. And nowadays, especially, I don't think it'd be very interesting. Everything's remote, you know? Right. So. Right. And I, I have worked a lot with um, like one agency in particular that was a promo production company mm-hmm. when I was writing promos and they became, they've sort of morphed into an ad agency, like a big ad agency slash content creation yeah. company. Um, they create original content and stuff. And it's fun, like, you know, it's a fun vibe, but really hard. And working for them was, um, it, it put a lot of pressure on me because they would say, and they were wonderful. Uh, like I loved working with them, but they would say, uh, we want to hire you for a day of your genius. Mm. And then the pressure was on like, oh God, what if I have no genius on this day? And there yeah. were days when I had no genius. It just wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and they would pool ideas from different people. Like they'd hire a bunch of different writers and pool their ideas. And like, that's how they, that's how the model works. And so like one might make it to air, like if they win the pitch or mm-hmm. if they have the job. It's one a lot might, of ifs. A yeah. lot of ifs. And so you don't get to, you know, unless you have a really high batting average. Yeah. Which I didn't. Mine was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get to see your spots on air all that much. Yeah. I mean, I found, because I've worked through ad agencies um, on a handful of occasions and it's just annoying to create the work, feel like you have to get it through them because there's going to be kind of uh, gatekeepers there that are like, eh, this is okay or this is great or whatever. Yeah, They'll ask you for edits. Then they show it to the client who then asks for more edits. And it just is a, it doesn't always seem like the most efficient process versus going yeah. directly, you know. Right. It's client. always by committee. And, yeah. And I found that they would if I gave them a couple of ideas and one of them was my least favorite, they would always pick the least favorite. Least favorite. Mm-hmm. Mm. Bad taste. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like at Nickelodeon was where you really began to kind of find your voice. I know that there were several editors who would say, oh, that's a Laura Bell Gray spot, which I think is the most fantastic compliment anyone tell you, you know, like, especially if your name's not attached to it to know, oh yeah, that's Laura Belgray who wrote that. A lot of writers generally have an ideal reader in mind, like Stephen King's an example. He writes everything to his uh, partner, who's also a fantastic novelist. I'm curious during that time, or even now, do you have an ideal reader in mind? Like, are you writing to someone, uh, someone specific? Um, you know, really, like I kind of switch around sometimes, mm-hmm. like if I have someone in mind. And when I was writing Tough Titties, I would sort of switch around who I am writing it for. Uh, but often, like especially if I'm writing an email, mm-hmm. like I'm kind of, I really am just writing it for me. For yourself. And, yeah. and I'm hoping that I'm writing it for people who like me. Right. I'm writing it for people who like my voice and like the way I tell a story. Mm-hmm. And... And hoping that I will read it back and say, oh, that's good. Yeah. 
or that I'll forget writing it. You know, when you, for, like you read something of yours and you're like, that's really good. Who wrote that? And you're like, oh, that's mine. Right. Yeah. I, sometimes that creates an insecurity in me where I'll read something I wrote three years ago and I'm like, damn, where's that at right now? Where's that magic at? Did oh, I, same. Yeah. It's, it, it kind of, that's not a fun feeling. But I don't know. I don't know what that is. Sometimes I'm like, am I even the one writing it? I don't I don't know. Yeah. Well, do you mean like sometimes you actually feel like that mythical like channel, like vessel? Yeah. I mean, I, I some, I'm spiritual to a degree. But yeah, sometimes when I read something I wrote even a month ago and I was clearly like in a flow, it's hard to not feel like maybe I had a little bit of help with that one or something. You know, I don't I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing about that is that you can't count on it being no. there. Right. Yeah. Um, those, I mean, there are those magical moments when yeah. you're like, I don't know where that came from. That yeah. just poured out of me mm -hmm. and it came out great. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, like speaking of Stephen King, when he wrote one of his books, the one about like the, the killer dog, do you, do you know? Cujo. Yes. Good memory. Cujo. Apparently he was so coked out during that whole book that he doesn't remember writing a single page of it, but it's wow. to this day, one of like his reader's favorite books. Um, <laughs> that almost makes me want to do Coke. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I'm like, <laughs> well, give me some of that. Um, in, in tough titties, are there any chapters that you read back and you're like, I don't even really remember writing that or that just surprise you at how good they are or you're not far enough removed yet. Yeah, there, there are none that I don't remember writing because, I mean, this is the first thing that I've ever written that I've had to work so hard on and go over each bit of writing so many times to make it as perfect as it can be. Like an email, I'll dash off blog posts, you know, I'll go back and read. I'm like, that's pretty fucking funny. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't remember writing it yeah. at all. And this is different because I... I did have to get so close mm -hmm. to the work, but definitely there are chapters that I revisit. I'm like, that came out really good. Yeah, it, it did. It, um, I think the best compliment I can give to another writer is when I read something of theirs that makes me feel a little bit insecure because like all writers are insecure. And yeah. I was reading that book and I'm like, damn, you know what I mean? <laughs> she's, she's fucking good. Um, it's very, I mean, I've told you this before, it's very Nora Ephron um, in the most magical way. And obviously like you have your own voice and all that. But as I was reading it, I have a lot of Nora Ephron on my shelf over here. And I was like, man, they, they I wish they could have met. Thank you. Yeah, yeah me too. I mean, yeah. that is a huge compliment. And so is the idea of writer's envy. I'm yeah. like, I experience it mm -hmm. so much and it is the highest compliment. It is. Yeah. Like, if you read something and you're like jealous of it. Yeah you know, they're doing some right. Wish I, yeah, wish I wrote that. Yeah. And I would say like, um, the feelings I have more reading it, there are a few chapters that give me when I was writing them. And when I read them back, they give me a little bit of a hangover, mm -hmm. like, because, you know, gosh, that was me. Um, because it is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. so the chapter, um, he's never going to leave her, which is about having, you know, being in a two and a half year relationship with your with married salsa instructor. Yes, that was. So that's the, that chapter. And then, of course, the blowjob chapter. Uh, those were the two that <laughs> made me blush. Uh, and I was in and I've, I've written some very graphic shit. So 
no judgment. But yeah, like that was a really interesting chapter. And one question I had was, is, is it weird writing that book? And then, you know, your mom or like your husband reads it. Yeah. What's, what's that dynamic like? It is. Well, thankfully my husband, those are the two exact chapters that my husband skipped and refuses to read ever. Okay. I, so <laughs> that was my question. As I was reading through it, I was like, one, these are, this is just fantastic writing, but he's a very strong man. <laughs> you can just read through that and not have like a little jealousy. Um, but yeah, so he's never even read a single word from those. Nope. No, he hasn't. Do you and think he ever will? No, I don't think he's ever going to read those. Everyone asks him, when yeah. are you going to read those chapters? He's like, never. <laughs> and yet my mom skipped right to the blowjob chapter that I... Oh, okay. That's kind of cool though. Yeah. The dedication is like, it warns her um, and, and my dad who's dead not yeah. to read that yeah. <laughs> chapter. How did, so wait, how did she feel about that chapter? Um, she felt, she found it painful, painful. because a, a lot of it confirmed exactly what their fears were. But th during that time I was living yeah. at home and it confirmed exactly what they thought I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, out till four in the morning when I said I was networking. Yeah. And which I was. You were networking. I was. Um, but also she I mean, I think she related to it a lot. She likes to say, like, oh, when I was that age, I also had a, some dalliances. Some uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you should have called the chapter. Yeah, dalliances. Yes. In the from the early nineties. <laughs> but uh I mean it's weird thinking of her reading it. I'm, I've always been very private. I've never been, you know, she's always wanted to know everything. And I've always, you know, maybe it was growing up with the dad I had, um, but her too. I always kept everything to myself and did mm -hmm. not have never felt comfortable sharing, sharing that stuff with her. Um, it could possibly be because she's so delicate about it and she would, and awkward, like she would say when I was in like middle school or high school, are there any boys that you might like. <laughs> I'm not telling you anything. Wow, You're already too my, uncomfortable. Yeah, my mom's a, I don't talk about any of that with my mom ever. Um, my dad and I are a little bit cooler with that. But I remember one time I was in, I think, high school or college. I was home for break, left the house, um, had some dalliances <laughs> with, with a woman I was seeing came back and I had like my college sweatpants on, but you know how like your college sweatpants had like the school logo on the, the front yeah. of the thigh. Mine were turned around. <laughs> so like my college logo was on the back of my thigh and my mom like kind of looked at me. She like walked over, slapped the back of like my leg <laughs> and then just left the room <laughs> And it still haunts me to this day. That is haunting. It is haunting. Yeah. Just also just the coldness of it, you know, doesn't yep. like the confidence of saying nothing, but just like, I know what's going on. Yeah. Wordless. Yeah. 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 Nice wordless. sweats. Um, let's take a cereal break. Tell me about your infatuation with golden grams. <laughs> Basically, they're a dessert okay. uh, that that passes a breakfast food. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows why? Which some would argue all cereal is, but yes, um, that's true. But these in particular, you feel that way with. I yeah, I feel like Golden Grams can make up for. I I've, I've feel this way about cereal in general, mm-hmm. but can really make up for a bad meal. Yes. Like if you have a disappointing dinner, yeah. have some golden grams. Mm-hmm. Do you ever, because I know. What? Oh my God. I saw you looking that way. Oh my gosh. Would um, you believe I haven't, um, I have not really eaten today either. Oh, good. They had, ter- I mean, this this can make up for the terrible snacks on, um, are we going to have sloppy eating sounds here? I guess so. No, yeah, you're good. What uh, what did you fly in uh, mm-hmm. to Nashville? What airline were you on? Sorry, I asked you that right when you took your bite, so take your time. United. Mm. These are as delicious as I was saying. I did not overpromise. They'd be really good with like mar- marshmallows in them too. These are so fucking oh, good. Had, they're fucking great, man. I had, I had a handful of them. Oh, you did. No, on the, on the plane, I flew first, like not fancy, for, like United, you know, cheap first. Mm-hmm. And um, they passed out, they had a, the attendant had a basket of snacks with like nothing in it. There were two, two packs of pretzels and one of almonds. And I took a pretzel and an almond and the guy next to me was like, any more nuts? And the guy was like, no, this is all we have. And there were none left for the, and so you're like, for the row in back of us either. I gave the guy my nuts because I had yeah. already. Also, there's nothing like water. really exciting about a bag of nuts on a plane you kind of want something a little bit tastier you know i mean jet blue gives you a whole assortment mm-hmm. and then you have access to them all all through the flight i feel very ripped off like i, I want um i want justice i feel like a good a good marketing strategy would on honestly be a plane just saying we're choosing to give the best free snacks away in the world like yeah. all airlines, we right. have the best snacks. Mm-hmm. Period. Yes, I I agree. So tell me about um, your husband. Isn't he like a phenomenal cook? Yeah, my husband's uh, always been in the restaurant industry as a front of the house guy. Like he was the the opening GM of Danny Meyer's mm-hmm. uh, restaurant, Eleven Madison Park. Worked for Wolfgang Puck in oh, Vegas and uh, and in San Francisco. Ran a place called Post Rio, where like the Clintons would come in, mm-hmm. and um, he's he's been doing that like right, like, I don't know, for like forty years, and then right before the pandemic, he quit the place that he was working with, and um, was just going to take a little time off to, like, figure out his next move. Yeah, and then the pandemic happened. And um, everyone wanted him to come back and work for them. And like, will you help us with our takeout? And he's yeah. like, fuck no. No, I'm not doing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he had just turned 60. He's like, mm-mm. Yeah. Too old for that. So what's what's next for him? He's been working on restaurant design now, which is perfect. It's like a meeting of all his talents because uh, he knows he's great at design. Like mm-hmm. he just, he's a design freak um, mm-hmm. and knows every reference and everything, you know, you can show him a chair and he knows who designed it yep. and what year and all that. And, um, and he knows how a restaurant needs to flow and like that the staff is going to have to walk all the way around, you know, to get to pick up that if they take the order over here. So he's been working with a friend who's in that business. 
um, out in San Francisco and that's, doing that's neat. That yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking like I ran ran across this guy called like the Menu Guy or something. I I literally think his name's that straightforward, but he just designs menus for restaurants oh, because yeah? that I guess is a whole art. Like when it, you should have a certain amount of dishes per category, and it should be in this order and and all that. Right. I wonder if he's responsible for everyone's menu looking the same. Like in, yeah, <laughs> every yeah, Italian every menu looks looking exactly the same. same. Yeah. One thing restaurants can't get figured out are the lights, I feel. Like I feel like they're almost always either way too bright or not bright enough. Right. Um, does he have opinions on that? He does. And he doesn't like things too bright. Okay. Yeah. Uh, He's like, you know, I don't care about your food porn, the lighting not being right <laughs> mm-hmm. for your selfies, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, by the way, I've seen now people take, like, they um, put on the flashlight on their phone and then put it and shine it through a white napkin to get the right lighting on their uh, food porn. Oh, okay. That's kind of clever. Yeah. Clever use. Yeah. yeah. And that's very smart. Sad, but, but clever. Yeah. yeah. But he he likes things dark and he's always turning the light off on me in our house. Like I'll be in the kitchen doing something and it just comes in and turns off the light. I'm like, hello, I'm, yeah. there's a person here. Yeah. What do you think I'm he, doing? Yeah. He just doesn't, he, he doesn't like lights a lot. So mm-hmm. yeah, his opinion is everything should be dark, I think. Um. Cool. Well, so back to you two. Uh, the from the outside looking in, like it looked like you had kind of the greatest job in the world with like the TV promos. Um, but then you sort of make the decision to go off on your own, start talking shrimp. I know there was a bit of a kind of kick in the butt from your employer too. But yeah. can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really make a decision to leave anything. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I tend to get complacent, and I'm not a big change person. Mm-hmm. I have to be forced. Like, you have to um, push me off the cliff. Mm-hmm. I'm not jumping. Right. So, uh, so, yeah, I was there for decades from, like, got my first promo job in, let's say, 2004. And then in 2009... That right. Sorry, 1994 is when mm-hmm. I got my first promo job. Okay. And then in 2009 is when I started talking shrimp, and that was kind of by accident. So our accountant um, told us that we should incorporate. We'd been married a year and got reamed on taxes. Mm-hmm. Like, you two should incorporate. Pick a name. It doesn't really matter what it is. Just, you know, preferably something with an available URL. And we went through a bunch of stupid names, and I thought maybe, like, there was a store called Funny Cry Happy um, <laughs> on the corner, <laughs> like a gift shop. And so I was like, Funny Cry Happy Media, that's perfect. And that was taken. Yeah. And then, believe it or not, Talking Shrimp was available. So we picked Talking Shrimp and um, we incorporated. And again, it was just for tax purposes. And then I said, you know what? I need a website. And I was going to make a website like laurabelgray.com. I think mm-hmm. I had bought that. And um, like, why don't I make our website talking, my website, talkingshrimp.com. Mm-hmm. And it was just going to be a, um, like a page where I would host my reel of spots so that I didn't have to send DVDs in the mail. And I talked to, I showed the design to my friend Marie Forleo, who we were friends from, and you know Marie, um, we were friends from Hip Hop Classic Crunch. Okay. And we had known each other for 
good, you know, six years or so. And she was, she really knew her stuff. She was very early in the online space and knew how to make money online. Mm -hmm. And so I showed her the design of my homepage and she said, it looks great. Where's your, where's your blog? And I'll see you blog in the nav bar. I was like, blog isn't it too late to start a blog oh my god and it was 2009 yeah um she's like moron she's like you of all people should have a blog you love to write so she's like you're gonna have a blog and then what's your opt-in i said my what in and she's like okay listen to me very carefully your email list is your gold you are going to build an email list and you are going to offer them a free thing in exchange for their email address. And this is, and then she diagrammed on a legal yellow pad, like how to set up a Weber and how to have a confirmation email. Mm-hmm. And it was very complicated, but for some reason, for once in my life, I, she was persuasive and I followed instructions, which yeah. I almost never do. Yeah. I almost never do the thing people tell me I should do. And now's the moment. And You know, here you are with a podcast and I'm still like, I should have a podcast, but I don't (laughs) want to. Um, But I did that and that site, you know, was Talking Shrimp and it evolved into a copywriting kind of site. It it also was to get um, promo clients. Mm -hmm. They didn't really come to my website. That was more word of mouth. And people would start opting in for my five secrets to non-sucky copy which I put up and then would get my emails, which led to my blog posts, which were about nothing having anything to do with copy. Um, they were just like funny stories, whatever I wanted to write about, like remember this Menudo video? And, uh, but people would read them and love them and love my voice and ask me for um, like for my copywriting services, started asking me to help them with their copy which I did. And so I started to have a little bit of a side gig building Mm -hmm. and I was also feeling a bit antsy, like in a creative rut in promos. I'd been there for a long time. I was no longer doing what I felt was my best work. I felt like I'd had my last good idea. And, um, and I was a little, like I liked the voice I was writing for that network had a great voice was fun to write for, but I wanted to do something with my own voice. I wanted to write in my voice for myself and make money doing that. And so starting the blog, you know, I didn't really monetize it. Like I didn't find advertisers advertisers or anything like that, but people would start to hire me um, because they liked my voice. So in a way I was making money from writing whatever I wanted to write. And, uh, That's not to say like that I packed up my stuff and said, I quit. I was still there writing promos and had a big, uh, like I had a six figure contract. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2010, like about a year, less than a year into my blogging adventures and having my own company, uh, my, that big client let me go. She said, we're not like, we were working on a project. She said, you know, after the writer's meeting, can you come talk to me in my office? I was like, yeah, sure. I figured she wanted to talk about the Betty White project. And um, I was like, yeah, I've got some ideas. Toss around. And I walked into her office and she said, close the door. And so, Never a good. Yeah, yeah, never a good sign. Yeah. And that's when she told me that she wasn't renewing my contract. So that forced me into action. I had to actually build the business that I was sort of. Like, Which really probably ended up being the best thing oh, that's ever happened to you. God, yes. Yeah. And I mean, 
promos were what promos were cool. Like that mm-hmm. was a way cooler job, right. you know, just ob- objectively speaking. Yeah. But um, then writing for like helping a life coach with their website copy. But uh, first of all, you have a lot of impact when you're helping people like business owners, solopreneurs, anyone um, who works for themselves with their copy that's going to make them successful. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, you don't submit a bunch of things and maybe something gets on air. You give them the copy and they use it and they're really excited in most cases. And then they get to, you get to hear from them. This worked. Like I'm getting clients now from your copy, or I love sending people to my website. So that was very gratifying. And, um, and it turned into everything else that I do and my creative outlet. And like now, you know, like you, I get paid in, in various ways to write what I want to write. And that's really exciting. And it never would have happened if I hadn't been pushed off the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the ultimate goal for everyone is to get paid to just be who you are and Mm -hmm. do the stuff you want to do. Um, throughout your life, you've kind of measured your, your merit in a few different ways. Uh, male attention at one point in time, uh, miles ran, uh, like exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, how do how would you say you measure your merit these days? These days, like I'm still, I'm still, a like the kind of person who checks likes, uh-huh. checks points, checks steps walked. And yeah. I mean, I have so many different metrics and yeah. none of them are true. I know this. I have to keep reminding myself, like, you know, the answer to am I a worthy person is not in how many likes that post got. Mm-hmm. Thank God, because n- not nearly as many as it used to. Um, thank you, algorithm. Yeah. But fuck the algorithm. Yeah. Um, so now and then and then there was my book that, you know, came out and I was like, I'm not going to measure my self-worth in like sale, how many book sales I get or whether I hit this list or that list or still I had like, you know, hopes. And I still do Mm -hmm. that. Like maybe it hits the New York times list, which it still could if, Mm -hmm. you know, someone to like Reese Witherspoon comes a knock in or someone like that. Um, and so, but I, I try to take satisfaction and find, you know, the self-worth in the fact that I wrote the book, I did it. I accomplished this thing that I talked about doing for so many years and some people, including myself, never thought I'd actually do it, mm-hmm. never thought I would finish it. And um, and I gave people very little reason to believe I would. So um, it's not like they're all doubters and haters. They just know me. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, I try not to measure my self-worth in anything and remind myself there's no measure of it. But I take great, like, personal satisfaction and pride in that I did that. Like it's a big accomplishment. Yeah. Kind of putting the worth in the process rather than the outcome. Yes. No. Yeah. Or trying in the outcome. Trying yeah. or, yeah. or, or not in like I take, I put pride in, there's pride in the outcome. Um, but maybe not in, in like what the book is and how it came out, but not in how it's received. That mm-hmm. is what I have to work to detach myself from. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about this with one of my friends yesterday where I'm fortunate to have some creative friends and people in my life. And it's, 
you can say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just doing this because I want to. I'm trying not to think too much about what happens with it. But deep down, like everything you do, you hope it's going to be successful. Like, I don't know how you can not dream about that. Yeah. But I, I don't know. For me, it's just taken like this consistent reminder of like, you, for the most part, can't control too much um, how something ends up being perceived or how successful it is. But you can't control like how much you enjoy the process of creating it, you know? Right, exactly. And it's, a, I think it is so key and not always um, easy to hold the success lightly mm-hmm. in a way, not invest so much, like not white knuckle hope yes. um, that this is going to take off the way you want or mm-hmm. just expect that maybe it'll surprise you or or maybe it won't. Um, but like the hope is always that like you don't know, something will come of it that you can't predict. That's yes. always been my my hope for the book. Even if it's not, a, yeah, even if it's not New York Times bestseller, maybe it's the introduction to like this really amazing opportunity you wanted to have thought of. Yeah, exactly. And it did make the USA Today bestseller list, by the way. So Congratulations. I'm so I'm measuring my self-worth by that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an excellent, awesome person. <laughs> it deserves to. It, it really Thank is... You probably a top three for me this year that I've read for sure. So I really enjoyed it. Um, What's your creative Everest? I mean, previously it probably would have been this book, but what about now? I guess it would be book number two. Like that's a true Everest. I don't even know if I want to climb it, but it's, it feels like. What would book number two be? That's what I don't even know yet. People like I had, when I was writing it and when I was finishing it and having to, carve out, like cut a lot of chapters, um, a lot of parts that like are precious to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, maybe these go in the next book and they might, mm. or maybe they're not enough for a next book. You know, maybe there's no idea there. So I, I don't know, but I, um, and I love the idea of writing fiction, but I have not tried my hand at it Probably at all. Probably because of Miss Fishbone. Yeah, Dead exactly. Right. It's fiction. Right. She ruined fiction for me writing it. Um, But I like I that's what I really love to read the most. It's fiction. I love reading fiction. I'm a fan of personal essays and like David Sedaris discovering Mm -hmm. him turned me on to and Nora Ephron Mm -hmm. turned me on to that form that Tough Titties is. But I what I really love to read is like a good novel that I can't put down. I just want to write something that is unput downable. That's my, yeah. always my goal. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that definitely is, is that, you Thank know, you. um, fiction would be, that'd be a fun one. You should, you should try that sometime. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that I might, I mean, I have a good friend from the writing program that I was in, mm-hmm. um, gate, it was, it's called gateless writing. And my friend Terry, who introduced me to it, uh, she also wrote a nonfiction book and, um, and it's a great book. It's called Unfollow Your Passion. Okay. It's so well written. Yeah, it's I've heard awesome. of that one. So good. Mm-hmm. But she's now like, you know what? I'm thinking fiction. And she's playing around with it and is saying like, oh, we have a good friend from that program, Daisy uh, Florin, who wrote a book called, um, it's a novel called My Last Innocent Year that came out in okay. February. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's really well written. And we heard her um, read scenes aloud during... Yeah, a writing retreat that we went to. Terry's heard her read them like for years and years now, scenes that are going to go somewhere in the book. And so Terry was reminding me, she's like, look at how Daisy wrote 
this book, wrote My Last Innocent Year, she didn't have an idea for a novel. She didn't have an idea for a story. She just had scenes. Yeah. And it it was built out of scenes, those scenes that she wrote separately. So that gives me some hope. Yeah, I think it's I think it's um but like Anne Lamott's uh advice, bird by bird. Yeah. You know, I think that's probably how you approach something. Uh like a book of fiction, you can't look at it as like a whole story at once, you know. Right. And the, and in this case the birds would be totally out of order. You don't know the <laughs> yeah. you don't know the alphabet of birds. You don't yes. know where they fall in there. Yeah. Um Cool. And then I, w- I was curious, did you write your uh, father's obituary? I did. Okay. It, it, it seemed like a, or it seemed like a Laura Bell Gray spot. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what I live to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, to close this out, I do what's called rapid fire questions, similar to Tim Ferriss's, but we up the ante with matches. Um, yeah, it should be fun. As long as you're not scared of fire. I am I'm terrified. Of Are fire. you really? Yes. <laughs> hey, you can say, you can say no. I might have to say no. All right. I love the questions. What are you doing with the, seriously, fire is my number one fear. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. Like, I had no I idea. I, like I won't light a candle. Oh, no kidding. Okay. It, that never made it into the book. No, it didn't. I have a, like an essay that I wrote that's on my blog for no reason whatsoever, Uh except I liked it on like all the things I'm afraid of. Why are you scared of fire? I like, I have recurring nightmares of, and this is how I, I guess part of me, maybe in a past life, this did happen. Uh I'm, I am afraid that I'm going to die in a fire that I'm going to burn to death. Mm -hmm. And I've always been obsessed with people burning to death and like any scenes of somebody on fire, I can't not look at. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. What if you struck the match while shooting it? Let's do that. Okay. That's good. I like that. (laughs) We'll collaborate. I like that plan. All right. I love it. Okay. Are you good? Are you good this far away? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No, if someone else is handling the fire, you're fine. And I can sit with a, you know, Uh candle on the table. Yeah. It's just, but if it's not in a votive, if it's like just a candle, you know, with the wick, um, it, I'm always like, is no one else seeing this? Like mm-hmm. there's, there's a fire yeah. on our table. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, I guess I, it's something I thought about, but when creating this game, I was like, there, I feel like there's going to be at least one guest who's scared of fire. And it it's hilarious it's, that you're like, yeah. unless you're scared of fire. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> um, real quick, I had a, before we do this, had a quick follow-up question on the obituary, if you don't mind talking yeah. about it. That seemed like an example where copywriting had a pretty tremendous impact on your life outside of just like writing promos or, you know, can you talk about other ways where learning how to write copy has been so much more than just like writing copy? Because that seemed like a really beautiful gift to give your family. Thank you. Yeah. And I should say my my mother and sister contributed, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's mine. Yeah. Um, you're the you're the head editor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think every you know any kind of email, anything that you like. I don't mean to my list, but like to persuade somebody or to ask to mm-hmm. ask for something, um, to ask for a promotion or raise at work. Like that's always involved copywriting. And I just one thing that comes to mind. Um, that really incorporates like all the principles of copy that I like to talk about and you do too, like about being human and conversational. Um, 
is that the time that I, I had booked a hotel for a wedding and in like Santa Barbara, like fancy hotel, and, but small, um, and forgot to, and decided not to go to the wedding and totally forgot to cancel the room by the deadline. So I knew I was going to be charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote them an email talking about how it was totally my fault and like it was probably way too long and like I don't know what's wrong with me and yeah, like yeah. I kind of holds a dump of a trauma dump on them but it was very human and admitting fault and um, not lying it was honest yeah and they wrote back they're like we really appreciate your honesty and we're happy to refund the room all right <laughs> so no, I love that yeah. I um I actually did that with with this house I love the house there were like a bunch of offers on it I wrote like this heartfelt letter and they didn't take the highest offer. They took mine. That's amazing. Kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering how much, how much more the higher offer is. Cause that's a, that's worth a lot of money. That email. Yeah. Yeah. It was worth, worth a pretty good amount of dough. So yeah. um, I'm imagining like at least tens of thousands. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So this game, I'm going to light the match. I ask you a question before it burns my fingers. You have to answer it. You kind of are in a good position here because <laughs> you have absolutely no repercussion. But so when I hear you screaming, yeah, okay. yeah, that's when you're like, mm-hmm. okay. So well, I'll light it. This is new for me. I've never been in this role. Um, <laughs> all right. So how much would Gary Vaynerchuk have to pay you to ghostwrite for him? <laughs> Actually, not that. No, I I would ask um, for a lot of money because he has a lot of money to spend. But I think that would be kind of fun. Okay. Just get get into my hustle bro asshole voice. Yeah, the good. Yeah. Did you see that um, Chobani's or Chobani's CEO hired like a ghostwriter for three hundred thousand dollars a year? No. Yeah, it was a pretty crazy role. Like That's went amazing. viral. Okay, yeah. my um, my price is a million. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you would do it for a million. You oh, think? for sure, I'll do okay. anything for a million. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I won't kill somebody. Yeah. Or would you, would you do this for a million? Yes. Okay. Um, next question. Let's see here. Okay. So you've called, called yourself queen obsesso. You've been obsessed with tasty light, uh, bartending, uh, Donkey Kong, salsa dancing, basement cults. Mm -hmm. What are you obsessed with right now? Right now, I'm sorry to say I'm very obsessed with Real Housewives of New York, from which I'm watching again from the very beginning. And I kind of can't stop thinking about it. And I just want to like I want to talk to somebody I want to tell and nobody else is back in 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 there with me. Um, (laughs) I like want I need someone to talk to about Ramona. And, you know, now there's a new cast um, of Real Housewives of New York. You should start like a podcast around new or Housewives of New York. Well, there are, there's a lot of Bravo content out there, believe it or not. Um, there are a lot of, it's a whole cottage industry of Real Housewives podcasts. And I do listen to some of them. You do listen? Obsessively. Really? Yeah. I didn't know it was such a big like industry and following. Yeah. Damn. Okay. Um, all right. Next question. Okay. So, what is so delicious about fries, spinach, and mustard? 
<laughs> well, I found the, that bizarre. The truly delicious part is the fries. Yeah. And then, so what you're describing is a meal that we would have at Lucky Strike, my friends and I, like after a, you know, a night out clubbing hmm. and we would order fries and then steamed spinach and mustard. And the steamed spinach and mustard was for me and my friend Victoria, who are both always trying to go locale. And the fries were mostly for Stephanie, though we would eat some of them. Um, she could eat anything. And we were only, you know, we tried to stick to the steamed spinach. Uh, it was just, you know, modified eating disorder. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. That's actually, that's all, all I have. I had, okay, one more question before uh, I got, we got you a gift, but... I wanted you to tell me real quick about the time you got uh, stoned with Martin Scorsese. <laughs> with, quote, Martin Scorsese, which you're... Who's not actually Martin not Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. Which I have been so curious by who the actual director was. Um, I think I probably could figure him out. You might, my gift to you is going to be a hint that I don't give you on air. Okay. And um, I like to, a lot of people reach out to me to ask, who, who is the filmmaker that I'm talking about? You should, not create, Martin you, could, you should create merch um, that just says who who is Martin Scorsese. Who is not yeah. Martin Scorsese. Who is not, who is not yeah. <laughs> I should, because um, what I tell people is write me an Amazon review and I will give you a hint and I'll tell you. That's clever. Yeah. Because uh, those are hard to get. Mm -hmm. So um, so this is a, a, the chapter you're referring to. It's called Starfuckers. Yeah. And it's about a time when... Um, my friends, Victoria and Stephanie just mentioned mm -hmm. were, it was in 1995 and we were on a trip to another city, um, London per the book. And, uh, we were having brunch in a little place and Victoria said, oh my God, oh my God, don't look, don't turn around right now. But right over there at that next table is Martin Scorsese. And I'm so obsessed with him. And she was in film school at the time. And she was like, I just wrote a whole paper on him and all his movies. And I, he's genius. And we're like, so go over there. Go say something to him. And she's, she's like, okay, he's ordering right now. As soon as they order, oh, shoot, now he's talking to the server. Now they're now he's really in conversation, you know, so doing that whole thing until she was like, damn it, he just left. And, um, you know, probably no check for Mr. Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were like, that just goes to show. You know, when you have a chance like that, you got to take, you got to go for it. And we left the restaurant and there was Martin Scorsese sitting on a park bench, taking in life as mm -hmm. one does when one's a great filmmaker. And, um, and we we're like, there you go. You got to go up to him. So she went up to him and she's like, hi, Mr. Scorsese. I'm so sorry we were staring at you all through the meal, but I'm in film school and I'm obsessed with your work and I'm such a huge, huge fan. And, um, and he was like, oh, well, I was staring at the three of you. And oh, I was wondering if the two of you were sisters, that's Stephanie and Victoria, because um, they both look like models. And he was like, and, uh, and what you're doing here in these parts? And, and Victoria said, um, your office is near here, right? And he said, yes, would you like to see it? So he took us on a little, we, we walked with him through the neighborhood and everybody, you know, in the streets like, buongiorno, Signor Scorsese. And, um, you know, he was known all through, and like when one uh, movie star called out to him, mm -hmm. you know, yoo-hoo, Marty. And it was very thrilling. And then he took us to his office and we went upstairs with him and spent the entire day hanging out with him, brainstorming, shooting the shit. Um, he 
said he hadn't smoked weed in many years, but he happened to have a rolling machine and rolled a joint. And, uh, and we smoked that with him. It was my first time ever taking a puff of weed. Yeah. In my life. And, um, and we became friends with him and then we, and we had to leave and he took our contact information. We're like, we're never going to hear from him again. Um, but then a month or two later he called us, he was in New York and wanted to take us to dinner. So we went to dinner with him and it was this whole night, you know, that started off kind of like pretty woman and then devolved into him trying to get us back to his hotel, um, the entire evening. And he kept talking about how he had spectrovision, um, this, you know, new kind of cable TV that had like 400 channels. And he kept telling us like, well, we could be watching that right now on spectrovision back in my hotel room. So we acquiesced and went back to his hotel room and um, spent the rest of the evening taking turns escaping from him, from his embrace. Um, We were like cuddled with him on the bed, which we did not want to be. And what was his punchline? (laughs) Every time someone got up and left him, left one of his sides lonely, he would say, I need a girl to hug. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's been our, you know, anytime we meet someone a little lechy, yeah. we're like, oh, he's given, uh, I need a girl to hug. Yeah. yeah. I love that story. Um, all right. Uh, one more question. If you go to a bar, do you order a martini or an old fashioned? I've, so I'm not a big drinker. Okay. I've just recently, and I'm, I don't know if I even know what an old fashioned tastes like, Okay, but... My husband's been on a martini kick. Okay, cool. Well, we have one gift for your husband and another one for you. That's perfect. So I've been, and and I am actually kind of into it. I never thought I would like it because I'm not a hard drinker. Like, you know, I like um, kitty drinks and Mm -hmm. girly drinks. Like, I like nuts and berries. I (laughs) I like bullshit drinks. Yeah. And he considers it bullshit even if you order a martini dirty. Okay. Um, And... I took a sip recently of his clean martini. It's like, that's pretty good. It's pretty nice. Yeah. So this I might is become one. From uh, Host Cocktails. It's amazing. It's a, it's, it's a pre-made martini, but don't let that fool you. Like, it's very, very good. It's made by this bartender out of Chicago. It's, it's a special one. I love this so much. Yeah. And I'm really excited to try it. And um, yeah, made with gin and dry broom. That's yeah. I, I believe you that it's good. It's very good. I know you have very fine taste. Oh, yes, yes, some, sometimes. Uh, that, <laughs> so that's you. that's for both of you. And then this is for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> did, did I? I know I didn't write in the book about working with Mr. T that, that was uh, Yeah. That was from Jeremy's research. So they're like at the craft services table and... Um, Tony is like has some grav locks on his plate and he's like grav locks exquisite and <laughs> Mr. T meanwhile is explaining his like jewelry he had he had a full silverware set mm-hmm. gold plated silverware set around his neck and he's like you know Mr. T, you know, they say, Mr. T, you want to eat some dinner? I'm ready. And then he, (laughs) (laughs) and then he flexes muscle and he goes, muscle like these cause an eclipse of the sun. (laughs) 
And then you have like Roblox, exquisite. <laughs> I love that contrast. Thank you so much. Thank this you. This was fun. This is amazing. I yeah. can't believe I get to come here, be on your incredible podcast. I leave with gifts. Best oh. thing ever. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Did I, did you get the shot? So. Well, folks, that wraps up another thrilling edition of Dreamland. Cole Schaefer and his team of creative misfits work their darn tails off each week to make this show possible. How do you compare your group with the Beatles? I don't know. How do you compare with the Beatles? I, I don't compare it at all. You know, there's no point. Well, let's get right down to brass tacks. Do you think you're better than they are? Oh, oh what? You know, it's, it's, it's not the same group. So we just do what we want and they do what they want. And there's no point in going on comparing us. You can prefer us to them or them to us. It's just diplomatic, you see. Very diplomatic. And I-